Hello and welcome to the Elsian Legal Podcast, bringing you expert views and analysis of the legal aspects of transfer pricing compliance. Our focus is always on real-world, practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. In this episode, we talk to Spencer Ho from RoyaltyStat, which recently became part of Tira. Spencer and Paul describe how franchises work in the commercial world, the key documents involved, and the key elements of their financial arrangements. They then discuss what information is available for the benchmarking of intergroup franchise arrangements, and what factors TP practitioners should consider in addition to the headline royalty rates. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Hi, Spencer, and thank you very much for joining us on this this episode. Thanks for having me, Paul. So, um, so the focus of of today is is franchising arrangements. So clearly, it is a very common structure in the third party world, and equally many intercompany arrangements or intercompany value chain structures are inspired by franchising arrangements and may also use third party franchise agreements for benchmarking so for comparables so let's let's just look at it from a high level perspective so spencer how would you describe a franchise agreement or franchise arrangement in the third party world are there different types and what kind of elements are usually included uh, well, just to touch on something you said in terms of franchising models being rather common, I would say in in royalty stat and our database of license agreements, franchise agreements are pretty pretty common to see. There's over four thousand of them, and you know franchise agreements are one of the few other sources of arm's length licensing transactions that you can find outside of the U.S. SEC uh, Edgar database. So it is something that is very common and that 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 states see and the FTC as well and Congress see as something that needs to be regulated uh, because it's so common. And I think it's also part of, uh, you know, the model. So in the third party world, franchises are networks of businesses designed to take advantage of economies of scale. I mean, we see it all the time, uh, even in the tax world, of course, we have the uh, we have the big four that essentially operate as franchises in in many respects. Mm-hmm. Not always, but uh, a lot of times you will see franchises of the big four accounting firms. And the way I see it is there are two sides. There's the franchisor uh, who built the franchise. Initially, they probably started with one office or one restaurant and then expanded the number of locations. Uh, and at a certain point, they probably decided to adopt a franchising model because it allows them to expand their business and bring in more revenue, build the brand as well, and uh, without investing as much of their own capital uh, upfront as if they were to, say, go into another state or another country and start building uh, new restaurants there or new offices uh, as part of the existing business. Mm-hmm. And then the franchisees, I see the franchisees as entrepreneurs, they're risk takers, uh, and I've known a few of them. And they see being part of a franchise as a way to mitigate some of those upfront risks, such as building the brand and establishing the systems that make a business run smoothly. Uh, and of course, they get access to those economies of scale. I think that's that's really important point. So thank you very much. So in other words, the, the high level franchisor perspective, which is the ability to take advantage of opportunities of of scale or opportunities to scale a business without incurring all the capital costs um and obviously from a franchisee perspective 
buying into a tried and tested model, hopefully, um, but equally being entrepreneurial. And I guess when many people think of franchises, um, they might think of McDonald's as as maybe the classic example um, and looking at it as a bundle of um, services or, or support which the franchisor is providing. So it's obviously the brand, it's obviously marketing assistance, it's it's the system, so the operating system, plus also access to supply chain. Um, plus, in the case of McDonald's specifically, it's actually the premises which are provided or, or, or leased by the, uh, the, the franchisor. So I, I guess that's one key feature of franchise arrangements is that it tends to be a bundle of, of different aspects. Yeah. And uh, there are, of course, different, I would say, parts of the value chain in a franchise, right? There's the franchisor, that would be the original McDonald's, I guess, or the McDonald's parent company. And then you have uh, master franchisees. And I would say often, though, they'll go by region. You know, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the uh, the, Latin American master franchisee for uh, for McDonald's is Arcos Dorados, and then in France, I believe they have uh, for that was the most recent uh, you know transfer pricing case, or at least the mm-hmm. most notorious one recently. Uh, I believe uh, the master franchisee in France was a uh, was a uh, was a related party, um, and the way that uh, the way I understood that to work, although you know, don't take this with a grain of salt because I don't remember exactly. And this is how the master franchisee agreements usually work: is that they have the license to develop the franchise in a certain region or a country, and they can subfranchise. They can, they can subfranchise out the the franchise to third parties, and they can also operate their own stores. And uh, usually, the uh, the the fee that they pay to the franchisor. Uh, is based on the revenue of the various franchise locations. Whether and, and there may be different rates, whether it's a if it's a if it's a uh, if it's an owned business or if it's a third party uh, franchise. Right. So, so, so from a high level perspective, we're looking at two key distinctions or two key dimensions. One distinction is master franchise versus individual franchises so there's different types of arrangements there and then on the other side there's well what is actually the bundle that is being provided to the individual franchisees so that this is what you're talking about spencer in terms of brand and operating procedures and supply chain and, and yeah. maybe premises and, and and so on and of course these are typical you know they they may not be the same they're they're probably not going to be the same for every franchise because you have a diff, you have franchises across different industries so the 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 aspects of a big four franchise are probably going to be different than a uh, you know a, a franchise in the uh, restaurant sector yeah totally okay so 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 we talked about that sort of high level commercial nature of them um let's let's move on and talk about how they how franchise arrangements tend to manifest themselves from a legal perspective in the third party world so so what are the core legal documents involved uh like i touched on earlier one of the nice things about franchises is that they're they're regulated uh so we get a good idea of the documents that that govern the franchise models because you know for instance uh in in california and i believe michigan 
and two other states. Uh, not only are the franchise the, the franchises required to register all of their documents, including the franchise disclosure documents, uh, they're also published online. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that, that's where we get them in royalty stats. Uh, franchise disclosure requirements are uh, regulated in, in the U.S. under under the CFR Chapter One, Subchapter D, Part Thirty Six, and they're regulated by the FTC. Uh, but you know the uh, the requirements there they list what must be in an FDD, a franchise disclosure document. Uh, there's I think twenty three items. We don't have to go through all all twenty three of them. Uh, and they also require that the franchisor discloses the FDD to the franchisee, I believe within 14 days of any payment or signing of any document that would, uh, you know, that, that would kickstart the transaction. Uh, other countries have similar rules. I've done a lot of research on it, looking for other, fran other, other countries that may have franchise agreements. Found a few in Australia. Uh, and they're they're pretty similar. I, I would say they're pretty similar. Some countries, some states are more stringent. They say that the FDD has to be disclosed, uh, you know, 30 days or maybe more before the transaction. And that's to make sure that the franchisee uh, has the opportunity to review it, uh, of course, by themselves and probably with counsel. And that also comes, I think, into the dynamic between franchisors and franchisees, you know, Franchisees can, of course, be successful business people or even even corporations, but they can also be a, uh, you know, somebody who is never had their own business before and is taking a big risk uh, that they can that they can pull this off and they have to understand everything that goes into it. And that's why the FDDs are very, very detailed. Uh, you have estimated uh, upfront up, upfront costs to get the business started. Uh, all of the all of the agreements are provided, uh, and there are even certain regulations that uh, you can't make certain changes. Uh, you know, after you know, within seven days of signing, uh, and all mm -hmm. negotiated anything negotiated, of course, is uh, you know is not part of that. But it, there is a big uh, idea that you have to protect the franchisees. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess that the fact that franchise arrangements are regulated in the us and and elsewhere means that it's it's helpful in, in terms of that d disclosure and transparency and um and that's reflected in the information available on on your database and and, and so on so um j just to add to that from the perspective of a commercial lawyer including in in my former life as a primarily uh commercial and corporate lawyer so the the, the kind of things that we would look at is obviously the franchise agreement the, the agreement would uh, refer to the, the manual or operating procedures and brand guidelines and, and so on. Um, but it would commonly also have, as, as you touched on, um, conditions precedent that the uh, franchisee needs to fulfill before the commencements um, of the franchise arrangement. So that will be things like um, completing training programs for more key members of staff. It would often also include pre-approval of, of premises and, and and so on so that, that that tends to be the overall structure yeah definitely and uh you know it, it there there's you know the fdds are very long 
and in addition to that, the, the franchisor will usually disclose audited financial statements uh, as part of that. You know, there's, it is a, a pretty arduous process. And I've, uh, personally, I also wonder how it's carried out, how much of this is relevant in the step-by-step -step process of, you know, creating an intercompany transaction. Yeah, fine. Well, so so we we can come onto that, uh, perhaps. So let's let's just drill down a little bit into the financial arrangements. So, um, what 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 are the typical elements that that you would see, Spencer, and and uh, and and so what's reflected in in your databases? Uh, the typical financial arrangements, you know, the the big ones, of course, is the the initial franchise fee, some call sometimes called a buy-in, and that will be a pretty substantial upfront payment depending on on the franchise. I don't know how precisely they are they are determined, but you could see uh, initial franchise fees anywhere from say twenty thousand to maybe a hundred thousand, um, mm -hmm. and that's uh, an important one to take into account. And then you have the uh, royalties. They're usually called royalties or maybe ongoing franchise fees. And those will would be your often your typical royalty rate expressed as a percentage of, of revenues from the business. Um, and then that is what is paid in, in consideration for the license to the brand and the franchise system, which you mm -hmm. could call you know uh, the intangibles. Uh, and then on top of that, another big one uh, that, that we see almost all the time is a marketing contribution uh, mm -hmm. to the brand fund, uh, which is used to uh, which which everybody everybody contributes to in the franchise. And it's it's used to fund uh, building the, the overall brand. And then in addition to that, you also often have a uh, a minimum local advertising spend, which, of course, is not a payment. Uh, necessarily to the franchisor, but it's a commitment so that the franchisor knows you're, you know, that the franchisee is going to invest in building this market, which is probably their you know number one uh, responsibility and probably the make or break part of being a franchisee. Can you can you develop this local market? Mm -hmm. uh, and then of course, like you mentioned, you have the uh, the other aspects of the uh, of the system. That might not be considered intangible. That are not considered intangible. They're services provided by the uh, franchisor. Uh, it might be uh, training, like you mentioned, certain administrative services. There might be a technology uh, package uh, that they buy and uh, buy into. It wouldn't be a, a unique piece of software that was developed to run the business. That would normally be covered under the license, but you know, QuickBooks, things like that, that they're required to have. And maybe I, I would assume maybe the franchise has a uh, gets a deal for them on it. Uh, mm -hmm. So those are all types of things that you would see in a in a franchise arrangement in, in terms of financials. OK, so 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 my next question was going to be what kind of information is available from the third party agreements on your database or else, elsewhere, which may be relevant in designing intergroup franchising arrangements. I think you you've covered a lot of that already in terms of the structure of the fees and 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 what they cover, and also structure of payments which may not be to the franchisor but may be required on under the agreements. So so that's it's the the detail of those arrangements may be relevant. Is is there anything else that you would call out, Spencer? Well, I like I said, I think how the fees are broken out is is very important. Uh, you need to really establish 
what is what is being paid by virtue of the royalty rate you know what is what is part of the intangibles the brand and the system so we mentioned some things you'll see a technology fee uh and you might say oh that's uh, part of the intangibles but no you know this is just a technology package made up of third party systems whereas other times you will see the system defined as you know anything it could be it could be software included in it patents uh, other types of ip uh, and that's really important, I think, when you're breaking out the fees and understanding what the royalty is paid in consideration for, and then also how the royalty rate is structured. Is it a uh, what if the what if the franchisee is allowed to uh, open other locations? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a, is there a different payment? Is there a specific payment? Is the franchising fee the same as the initial franchise fee? Is it lower? Is the royalty on the sales of those locations the same uh, or is it lower or higher? So these are all things I think you would want to take into consideration when designing an intragroup franchising system is that you do have to keep in mind that it is not, uh, you know, one size fits all. Uh, There are different conditions for every transaction that goes on. It's not as simple as it seems. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So, so, sorry, and I just, just to jump in there, that that sort of high level commercial point about what's included, what's not included in in the franchise fee, but also to the extent, or if if it is decided that actually a franchise model or third party franchise comparables are an appropriate way to go, and how you implement that or how that might manifest itself from an intergroup perspective, clearly what you're not trying to do is 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 um, try to replicate all the complexity of a third-party franchise agreement. Um, what we're trying to do is achieve an overall result or design a relationship, design a transaction um, such that the comparables can be taken as a reasonable approximation of an arm's-length outcome and a, an arm's-length arrangement. Right. And I think that does uh, touch on one other point, which is that uh, the franchise financing. So in in you know, of course, the the franchise the franchisee has to be capitalized. They have to be able to cover the upfront costs and also some ongoing costs before they start generating enough revenue to cover their ongoing costs. Uh, and sometimes you'll see, and I would actually say fairly often that the uh, franchisor will offer some form of financing uh, on the initial franchise fee. Uh, for instance, I was reading one the other day just to prepare for this and the franchisor would allow the franchisee to pay only half of the initial franchise fee and the rest could be paid off over time uh, mm-hmm. they you know the uh, of course there was an interest rate on it i think it was uh, the bank of america prime rate plus uh, you know plus plus something else uh, and i think you know when you're in the intragroup uh, uh, setting there will be there will probably be inter in, in intercompany financing to capitalize the franchisee. But also when you're designing that, you may want to take into account that in the uh, you know in the third party world, it would not the the franchisee may not take everything out as a loan. They may fran- they they may finance certain things with the franchisor. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point. So, I, and from my perspective, it, it goes to comparability. So, to the extent that a third-party f- franchise arrangement is being used as a relevant comparable, 
but that franchise arrangement provides or includes preferential financing terms, so terms which would not be um, arm's length on a standalone basis, then maybe an adjustment might need to be made in terms of comparability in assessing uh, royalty rates. Yeah, and you may want to also assess in the maybe even ahead of time or do some research whether this uh, you know this this uh, financing offered by the the franchisor is is really uh, preferential. You know, the franchising sure. world is is not no, is not beyond uh, you know being a little doggy dog. Uh, so of course, if there's a realistic uh, you know realistic alternative where the franchisee can you know, finance that initial uh, initial franchise fee on, on better terms, then you would also, you know, you would want to take that into consideration uh, as well. Sure. Okay. So I, I guess, you know, the, the, the overall picture that we're painting here is, is the fact that there is a lot of detail, which is available from your databases and, and, and so on in terms of the actual terms and the way that third-party franchises operate. So my next question was going to be, well, how might tax authorities use this kind of information when they're reviewing intergroup arrangements? Well, I, I don't have personal experience uh, saying how they how they would do it, but I can think of a, a few ways based on seeing some cases where it's come up. I, I think there was uh, the, the litig I think it was the litigation in Denmark with uh, Attico, uh, where they brought in some... Uh, third-party franchising agreements and the court sort of disregarded them because uh, because they didn't bring any in any support in terms of the profit potential. Uh, but like I was saying before, profit potential is always difficult in, one, in terms of comparability, but uh, we do get a lot of information in the FDDs uh, to assess the market size. Uh, to assess the franchisor's uh, profitability as well, uh, and you can also make some, you know, some some calculations in terms of the expen the the expenses to uh, to to revenue uh, projected revenue, for instance, the upfront expenses, and also since they estimate the ongoing expenses uh, from time to time in these FDDs, it's a very valuable research document for tax authorities and also tax taxpayers, of course, when you're trying to build uh, a very, you know, a defensible uh, you know, uh, uh, royalty rate study or franchise study, or to uh, counter uh, a study that maybe was not as diligent. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, you know, think of thinking of a couple of other things. Uh, again, it's, you may, the, 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 the tax authorities have been interested in when there's a service fee, you know, is the service actually provided when you're designing the agreements and you're saying, well, the service fee is in consideration for, you know, this support service, that support service and so on. Uh, well, you're going to have evidence in the third party world of what services are typically included uh, and paid for and what uh, services are typically provided, you know, for instance, for free or some services may be optional. Uh, and again, you know, you get into the realistic alternative uh, discussion. That's that's incredibly helpful. Well, I'm, unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to try and wrap up. So, so one is that um, in in the context of intergroup arrangements, and in particular designing intercompany arrangements um, on a forward looking basis, the franchise word word is often used. Sometimes it's just meaning that 
what we're talking about or what is proposed is a franchise-like arrangement, so it's a bundle of different elements. But sometimes it means that specifically um, there are third-party, or the intention is to use third-party franchise arrangements as comparables. And it's really important to be clear on which situation we're talking about here. And if if we are, if the taxpayer is going down the franchise arrangements as a third party comparable route, then it's important to be clear about when this may not be appropriate at all. So franchises, as we talked about before, it it they presuppose that the franchisee is actually assuming risk, um, including market risk, operating risk, currency risk, and, and, and so on, which in turn presupposes that the franchisee has the financial capacity to bear that risk. So clearly, it's not an appropriate model for things like limited risk arrangements or target margin arrangements or something like that. So that's the first point. The second point is that, as we've um discussed a number of times a key question in terms of the royalty is what is included and what's not included in in the in the royalties so so that is relevant in terms of looking at third party comparables in terms of franchise arrangements and it's important in terms of replicating that albeit on a simpler basis in the intercompany arrangement and the intercompany agreement so uh just to give a specific example are there uh, additional services which are going to be charged for separately in addition to the royalty uh, royalty fee. Second point. The, the third point is it's just a practical point that um, as, as we've discussed, a royalty payment typically covers a bundle of different elements like brands, um, uh, the access to the system or brand manual, manual or operating know-how together with with services and maybe goods um and from a wider tax perspective those different elements may well have different treatments from the perspective of withholding taxes vat and sales taxes customs and so on so although in a third party arrangement it may be a single amount so a single percentage for that that royalty in an intercompany pr- uh, perspective or in the intercompany agreement, it may be important to break down that amount and allocate different elements to those those different aspects of it. Um, and and then finally, you know, we we are creating a very specific new arrangement, um, and it's it's important to document it upfront. It's it's not the kind of thing that could be made up after the events um, because it's just too complex. Um, Spencer, any, any additional points that you'd like to emphasize before we finish? Uh, you know, I think uh, the one point to, to emphasize, and you mentioned it also, is that franchisees, they're risk takers. And I, I think in addition to when you're designing the uh, intercompany uh, structure, you also have to be important in, in monitoring the, you know, at the operational level that the franchisees are actually operating as as risk takers you know that it, they're not uh, just uh, franchisees uh, masquerading as limited risk retailers or limited risk distributors uh, because that is going to break that your, your entire system is going to break down uh, if you do that uh, and in terms of comparability uh, as well you know I see I've seen some uh, you know some people try to you know, extrapolate certain things from franchise arrangements and apply them to different types of arrangements. Uh, for instance, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, contribution to the marketing fund and the uh, required local ad spend. 
you know, that does not, uh, you know, just because that applies to a franchisee who is licensing the brand, it doesn't apply to a limited risk distributor. So we really need to pay attention to, you know, the how the entity is characterized and how they're actually operating when putting when when, you know, considering franchise agreements as comparables uh, and also even getting any insights from them because they're 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 generally very different uh, transactions than even your typical trademark license agreement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Spencer, thank you so much for spending the time with with us. It's been it's been really uh, really insightful and in- interesting for, for for me and I'm sure for our listeners as, as well. Um, and uh, just to let people know, we'll, we'll include Spencer's contact details in, in the notes for the podcast so that you'll know uh, how, how to contact him if you need any, any help in terms of accessing uh, agreements or arranging that kind of data. Thanks, Paul. And uh, thanks for having me, despite my inexperience as a podcast uh, guest. Not at all. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the LCN Legal Podcast. We really would like to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, lcnlegal.com. You'll also find a transcript of this episode in the blog section, which will include Spencer's contact details. And in the training hub and on the blog section, you'll also find much more about many of the issues discussed in this episode. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the LCN Legal Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.